Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 552 of the podcast and it is Friday the 21st of May 2021 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Patricia McLean about discovery writing, sometimes known as pantsing but let's face it discovery writing is much cooler. (laughs) I am also a discovery writer so we have a good chat about craft and the weird ways we write because not all discovery writers are the same like not all plotters are the same and uh, we definitely have a good chat about that. Also, Pat was first published in the 1990s, so she has sustained a long-term career through traditional and then indie publishing, and we talk about the joys of being a relatively unknown and happy six-figure author where writing comes first, which, let's face it, is a fantastic goal to have. So that's coming up in the interview. So in publishing news this week, some very interesting things going on. First up, a New York Times article this week about the publishing industry had a a statistic even (laughs) that shocked many. 98% of the books that publishers released in 2020 sold fewer than 5,000 copies. And it really was our backlist that saved the day for us. Now, this would definitely explain why there is more consolidation going on in publishing right now, because those numbers don't make sense for the industry. I mean, really. So expect disruption ahead. But it's also another lesson about building your backlist and having the long term view, which again, I think is one of my soapbox topics. (laughs) But most indie authors wouldn't also sell 5000 copies of their first book in 2020 either, or even books published in 2020. So I just had a look at my sales volume. Now remember that sales volume, so 5000 copies sold does not, you know, might have massively variable amounts of revenue. So you could sell 5,000 copies of an ebook at with at 99 cents where you get 30 cents royalty plus paying ads on it. So you might not make any money, but 5,000 copies of a, um, you know, uh, an ebook at 9.99 for example or a, a hardback or paperback where you've made significant profit would be different so anyway sales volume is not profit remember that but it's interesting because i barely ever look at sales volume i mainly um look at money <laughs> Yay! (laughs) But I went and had a look at which books sold over 5,000 copies for me in 2020. Uh, So the books that I sold more than 5,000 copies of are How to Make a Living with Your Writing, which was the old edition because the new edition came out in 2021. So that and that book had been out for six years, I think. Uh, or four years, something like that, but a number of years. Map of Shadows, which again came out a number of years ago. The German version of successful self-publishing, mainly print copies, and How to Write Nonfiction, which is definitely one of my best-selling books as well. The rest of my books sold fewer than 5,000 copies each, but again, it's not revenue. I'm not going to go into all the details, but I did make over six figures in US dollars from book sales alone in 2020. So the reality is that that 
the same with publishing like they like the quote said it was our backlist that saved us and this is the thing the bus- this is the business model and this is the business model that indie authors have always had which is it's not about spike in year 1 spike sales in year 1 it's about consistent revenue month by month year by year and that's how most of us make a living. And that's why when authors move over from traditional publishing or new authors think that the launch is the most important part of the process, but it's not. It's actually one tiny part of the process, but you make most of your money over the longer term with um, with book sales. And that works for the online market as per this New York Times article. Again, links in the show notes. I think this is a really interesting article And coming into, I guess, myths, there are a lot of myths about publishing and how much money you make. There have been a few articles about how much authors earn. Sarah Nicholas, listener to the show, hi Sarah, uh, did an article on Book Riot and uh, on how much authors make per book. And again, it's really interesting because it shows the variability. She talks about the percentage, the different percentage royalties across traditional and indie and features a number of authors across various genres in traditional publishing and in the authors and shares their earnings. And some are making hundreds per year, some are making tens of thousands per year, uh, some more than that. Um, it is so varied and really interesting. Prizes, foreign rights sales, uh, teaching, speaking, combinations of genres and ways of publishing, including crowdfunding, make up a lot of authors' income, not just book sales. And yes, as ever, multiple streams of income is the way forward. So again, links in the show notes. And then Jane Friedman comments on this article and other articles on author earnings. She says, I do not like this question. (laughs) As in, I do not like the question of how much does an author earn? And Jane says, of course, I understand why it's asked, but it's, and I empathise with those who ask it, but it's like asking, what does a musician earn? What does an artist earn? There are lots of factors and that might be entirely misleading about your own potential. She, she says, traditional publishing earnings can have very little in common with self-publishing earnings, so you can't compare the two. Your genre and category can determine a lot about potential earnings, as does how much work you have out in the market. More books equals more earning potential, no matter how you publish. Also, authors who participate in the so-called creator economy can have little in common with authors who do not. And it was so interesting that Jane mentioned creator economy because I've been seeing this more and more in articles and podcast episodes and discussions. It's like I'm part of the creator economy. And this includes YouTubers and musicians and indie filmmakers and influencers and TikTokers and all of this. And, and it's funny. And, you know, people who do crowdfunding and Patreon. And what's interesting is we can definitely say we are part of the creator economy. Now, I, in my books, I've said we're part of the maker movement, which was something, a term that's been around for a couple of decades, really. But the maker movement is the sort of artisan, I make my things. But the creator economy is a bigger word, I think. And it really represents the uh, amount of supporting apps and products and services that are have arisen to support independent creators. And this is definitely the next iteration of the movement. I'm thinking of writing some kind of article about 
positioning in the creative economy. Because if people ask about your books and you say, oh, you know, and they'll say, oh, so how do you publish? You can say, I am a member. I'm part of the creator economy, <laughs> which has a lot less baggage than the term self-publishing. So that's definitely interesting. And Jane continues saying, is publishing and literary culture changing? Yes. Are the changes bad? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> she says, what you earn is about what business model you can envision or build for yourself and whether it's sustainable for you over the long term. And by sustainable, I also mean enjoyable and not something you wake up every morning regretting. And this is exactly what I've talked about before and the business model that you have. And uh in uh, the book, uh, How to Make a Living with Your Writing, I talk, there's, there's so many, there's hundreds of ideas in there about different ways to supplement just the book sales. And uh, yeah, so that was an interesting group of articles. So coming on to audio, I attended another audio conference this week, the All About Audio Conference run by Bookwire out of Germany. And this is a tech company supporting publishing. And uh, I'm looking forward to later in the year, they've talked about launching a platform for NFTs, a blockchain platform, and uh, I'll hopefully be going to Frankfurt Book Fair where I'll learn more about that. But in terms of the conference, it generally, again, the vibe is incredibly positive. They talk about the spoken word audio boom and the audio growth is because of video and screen saturation that people are choosing audio because their eyes are tired <laughs> as well as just too much going on on screens. Also, the microphone can travel to places where the camera cannot and it's a lot cheaper. And I think that's brilliant because so often I've thought about certainly adapting my books to more of a um, drama, audio drama. You know, obviously audio drama is a different product to a audio book, which is a straight read, whereas an audio drama is a performance and you write a, more like a script and you have sound effects and, and all of that. And so it's very interesting because it's a lot cheaper to do an audio drama than it is to film a massive <laughs> movie, thriller movie. Uh, so they noted the pandemic has given people more time to listen. There has been a 12% increase across English speaking markets in entertainment time, but non-music audio had a 17% growth. So people are choosing to spend more time with non-music audio. So that's spoken word. There has been a decline in radio and a decline in non-streaming audio. And the growth has been in um, streaming music, which obviously we've seen, and also in podcast listening. Now, what was also interesting is that this week, finally, I've seen some of my family and I went uh, to my dad's and my dad has an uh, Alexa. Sorry if I've triggered your device, but uh, I never thought I'd see it. And this is this is what happened when my mum got a Kindle like years ago now. But when my mum got a Kindle, I knew that had gone mainstream. <laughs> and now my dad has a uh, device and he talks to it and gets it to play music, streaming music. And he says it's changed his life because he hasn't really listened to music in a long time. And now he's playing all this music and he's bopping around. and it, it, It's very, very cool. So and what, how old is my dad? Like 72 or something. So yes, very interesting times. Spotify has overtaken Apple Podcasts as the most visited podcast platform. So Spotify is 43% of, this is in uh, the US, Spotify 43%, Apple 26%, Google Podcasts 22% and all the others much smaller. And uh, they did say we are at the relatively early stage of podcast adoption which kind of made me go, okay, that's interesting because I've previously said that I'm normally early by a couple of years. 
but I've been podcasting <laughs> since 2009. <laughs> so if it's now the relatively early stage of podcast adoption, then I might be doing this for a long time. <laughs> that made me laugh. Oh dear. They also said... The beat, there's a massive increase in the number of people making music. Uh, The independent artists grew by 31% and the role of the independent creator will accelerate. Niches are the new mainstream, micro-community and fan economy is important. They also talked about artisan songwriters. And I was sitting there going, wait, that, you know, why can't we be described as artisan authors? I mean, seriously, dudes. (laughs) They also use the term fractional economics. So again, all of these terms are coming up now in uh, in the discussion. So fractional economics is, again, multiple streams of income. The idea being that all these tiny, tiny streams, all these micropayments will add up. And uh, they encourage being wide and being on all the platforms to think of things as a series of these parallel micro streams. And you must have all of them, basically. What's so interesting is how different the adoption with audiobooks is, digital audio, than it was with ebooks. And maybe that's the difference of a decade. But I still feel like, like listening to traditional publishers talk about audio, they are not traditional in any way. It's, it's almost like this has freed a whole load of people from the way things used to be. And they're just experimenting. It's just totally different to ebooks, which I feel were adopted as, oh, just a digital version of the print book which I guess they are, but the excitement wasn't there. And now there's a lot of excitement around audio. They also had uh, Google doing a whole session on auto narration for audiobooks, as I discussed with Ryan in episode 554. I'm going to link to a YouTube video in the show notes, which goes into how they do it. And it's very cool. What is very, very interesting. So it's still in beta and uh, you can apply to the beta and it this is this was kind of stunning when they presented it. It is going to be free or a very nominal fee to create an unlimited number of audiobooks with Google AI voice. You can sell them on Google Play or you can Google Play Books, sorry. Or you can download the files to sell on other retailers. So yes, you will be able to download the files and sell on your own website or on other stores when inevitably other stores are going to have to accept these. It is English language only for now and they are recommending non-fiction only. But again, I'm pretty excited about this. This is obviously I talked about in episode 544 and I've been talking about AI voice for a couple of years now, but this is really starting to happen. They also absolutely said this is not a replacement for human narrators. This is more for all of the many, many millions of books that are backlist. And because of the expense of doing a human narration, this will enable so many more books to be available. And it's going to be very interesting what impact this has. Also in audio, uh, it is finally happening. Again, we've known Spotify was going to introduce audiobooks. Well, they just announced a partnership with Storytel. So what they've said is later in 2021, Storytel subscribers will be able to enjoy Storytel's library of audiobooks on Spotify by linking the two accounts. So essentially, if someone is in Storytel and they have Storytel and Spotify, and presumably there's a lot of overlap, then they'll be able to listen. It is Spotify's goal to be the singular platform for all audio, music, podcasts, live conversations, and now via this partnership, audiobooks. 
Audiobooks are just one form of audio that will be available using Spotify's open access platforms. The possibilities in audio are limitless. So this is just the beginning. And obviously not everyone is going to be a Storytel subscriber, but this is a good start. And if you're on, if you distribute audio through Findaway, findawayvoices.com, your books are on Storytel. So mine are, a lot of mine, all my wide audio books are on Storytel. So they will also now be in Spotify. And I'm pretty excited about that. And I think this will only be the start, as I said. And it may be that this open access channel platform will enable us to get our books on there through other means as well. Spotify also announced auto transcription of podcasts, starting with the big names, but with the aim of a wider rollout. And of course, in the same way Google Podcasts does this, it helps with audio search, which has always been an issue. Uh, It's important to use keywords in your podcast episode title, uh, but this will also help people unearth back catalogue episodes over time. And again, I started talking about this a while ago uh, in terms of transcription in the background that is not uh, necessarily visible to the user, but is a way to search audio. This has been a real issue for so long. Very exciting to see it emerging. And as voice and audio content becomes more and more important, we obviously need different ways to search Also, finally on audio, I am slowly going through the pain of getting my rights back for ACX books, which were royalty share and exclusive. Now my seven years is up and I am trying to get them wide. It is a bit of a pain. Uh, One of the mistakes I made was not waiting until I could afford to produce audiobooks. I went ahead and did royalty split deals when I should have waited. And what is so funny is I remember Bella Andre, who was, you know, still is a real big indie author, but is a lot quieter on the scene now. But back in 2014, it must have been, you know, she actually said, at, I think it was the London Book Fair or whenever it was, uh, she said she regretted some of the early audio deals she did and she advised holding on to rights until you're really ready. And I made the same mistake, even though I heard her say that. So I thought I'd share it again because I remembered that the other day and was like, ah, oh, such a pain. And um, yeah, I made that mistake in a hurry to get my books out because I thought I was missing out. This was 2014. I mean, seriously. <laughs> amusingly I was super early anyway so yeah really a lot of um I feel like my regrets have been around signing contracts for things at different points and getting it wrong and of course you have to take risks sometimes and you know I have been had the benefit of being in audio and making some money from audio early but I feel like I've got a lot of work to do now to undo things that I did seven years ago and kind of start again. But that's okay because we all have to keep starting again. You know, we change titles, we change covers, we write new books. It's just the way it goes. But I thought I'd share that. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. L.E. Meerman says, thanks for giving some realistic expectations for your first book. I hear all the time not to expect my first book to be the next Harry Potter. (laughs) But what should I expect? Love the visibility goal. Great interview. Gladys Strickland says, as I continue to work on my first novel, this interview with James Blatch is encouraging. Now back to revisions. And uh, Pitcher Talk on Twitter said, listening to this right now, just heard the news about the relaxed author. OMG, I squeed and smiled, excited. Yay. 
And uh, just a couple more. E.R. Donaldson says, caught the podcast with James Blatch. Reassuring to hear about his early publication challenges. Gave me a few ideas for what I can do to avoid my own similar pitfalls in the future. And finally, thanks to QJ Martin, who said, I finally hit 2016 on your podcast after like two years. <laughs> so I know some of you go back and listen to the backlist. And what's funny on the backlist, if you work backwards, which of course I think QJ has been doing that, is that you hear my own writing life in reverse. <laughs> so I can't imagine what it must be like because I haven't re-listened to any episode. Um, oh, I... I did a, I do go through the transcript sometimes, but of course I don't transcribe this introduction. So uh, yeah, I never know what I say, basically. So today's show is sponsored by findawayvoices.com. Very appropriate given the growing importance of audiobooks as mentioned in the news segment. So what is Findaway Voices? Well, it's basically about making your audiobooks available everywhere and going wide with your audio. Findaway can help you find a narrator or you can upload files that you've already created yourself or with another uh, narrator. Your, you can choose up to 43. They have a total of 43 retailers now. It includes, you know, things like Audible and Apple Books, but also Google Play, Storytel, Kobo, Nook Audio, Script, Overdrive, Hoopla, including Library, Audio. And also you can go fully wide and you can sell your audiobooks direct. They have an app, Authors Direct, and also you can sell it from your own website, as I've talked about. So it really is totally wide audio. You can also have distribution to Chirp, which is BookBub's audio service enabling you to do audiobook promotions because you have control of your price and this is huge because uh, unlike some other platforms we won't mention you can set your price on findaway you can also do uh, discounting which means when you have a chirp deal, which I've had a couple and they are fantastic uh, and they're only available in some markets but they're looking to roll out so we're just at the beginning again of this audiobook Uh, ecosystem of promotion but right now Chirp is brilliant uh, as you'd expect from BookBub and uh, you can submit to Chirp, you can do ads for Chirp, that type of thing on BookBub. So I have done both types of narration with Findaway. I do upload my own files for non-fiction but I also used Findaway to help me find a voice for my Map Walker series. Now I was waiting until I'd finished the trilogy but also I didn't really know the voice I wanted. I had something in my head but I was really struggling and so with Findaway you can fill in a form about your book and your preferences and they will find a load of samples for you to check and I found someone I really like, Charlie Sanderson and that went out there and we now have a trilogy and I'm just thrilled with those audiobooks and even though I created them through Findaway directly I can also sell them myself on my website so I am just really happy with Findaway I think going wide with audio in this market as I mentioned earlier this is about all of these different streams of income and with the promotional opportunities like Chirp, it's just well worth it. So you guys know I only work with podcast sponsors. I actively use and ethically promote myself. I love Findaway. I just, I love being wide with audio. And as I said, I'm trying to get out of some of my older contracts, which means I can go wide with as many books as possible. So take back your audio freedom and check out findawayvoices.com today. 
So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. And you guys are awesome. Thanks to new patrons this week, Diana Kihi, Hayley Griffiths and Lucy Barrow-Sudro. I hope I got that right, Lucy. <laughs> Thank you to everyone. And remember, if you support the show with just a couple of uh, euros or GBP or Canadian dollars or US dollars a month, just a coffee a month or a couple of coffees, if you're feeling generous, you get the extra Q&A audio, uh, which I just sent out last week. And I answer your questions and uh, give some behind the scenes info. So support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Patricia McLean is the award-winning and multi-USA Today best-selling author of over 50 books across mystery, contemporary and historical romance, women's fiction and non-fiction. Today we're talking about discovery writing and the survival kit for writers who don't write right. <laughs> so welcome, <laughs> Pat. Well, thank you so much, Joanne. It's wonderful to talk to you. It's been a while... We were in London. Little, <laughs> oh, know, goodness. Back well, in 2020. Yeah. Yep. Goodness me, it feels like a long time ago. But uh, um, back into today's show, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. I was one of those kids who read everything I could get my hands on. I haunted the Helen M. Plum Memorial Library. And I, I love it. She, Her husband was Colonel Plum, and they donated their house and and garden to my town. And that was the library. And I thought everybody had stories in their head. It was a real shock to me to find out that people didn't. As I was reading and growing up, I can remember specifically going down to the kitchen to my mother and reading her this passage from Dickens when he describes Uriah Heep as unctuous. And I just got this shiver down my spine. And I told her, I want to do that to people. (laughs) (laughs) And then I discovered, uh, it seemed to me, you know, Dickens was so far away over there, a different century, a different country, a different world. And I, what really struck me was when I found out that a woman named Marguerite Henry who wrote horse books, as as somebody said, girl meets horse stories, (laughs) Misty of Chincoteague and Sea Star. And I had read these and I I was just, I was fascinated. She lived in the same county I did. And it was like, holy moly, real people write books. (laughs) This is, you know, a possibility. So that probably really sparked the dream to do it someday. And understandably, my parents thought something more practical would be a good idea. So I went into journalism. Not totally practical. I went into sports, especially at a time when women didn't do it. The last part of that career in journalism was uh, 23 years editing at the Washington Post. And in that time I started really writing because I'd been goofing around with writing before that, but I could never get past the first couple chapters. And I would send them off to my sister-in-law who is like babysat for me when I was six because she and my brother were high school sweethearts. And she'd say, this is great. Now what happens? I don't know. (laughs) 
She said, no more. Send me no more until you've finished it. I can't stand it. I get invested in these people and then you just leave them. So I got involved with the Washington Romance Writers and I got into traditional publishing. As, as I said, my first book was out in 1990. Did 27 books in 25 years of traditional. Kept being told I was pushing the envelope. Never felt like that to me, but it wasn't a great fit. So when indie came along, I was more than ready to explore that. And I was hybrid for a while. And then in 2015, I went 100% indie. And it has been a ride. It's been terrific, all-encompassing in some ways. As you know, we can work all the hours, right? Mm. (laughs) And so I've had, as I said, 27 books in 25 years in traditional. And now I'm pushing, or I may be over 60. I don't keep real close track. But I've done a lot more books indie in a shorter span than I did traditional. Mm, that's fantastic because uh, I always find it interesting when people have had a, a much longer journey and started out when things were very different and we're going to come back to that but I, w- I wanted to talk today about your uh, discovery writing and for people who might not be clear what what is uh, a pantser or a discovery writer what do you mean by those terms what I mean primarily is that I don't plot ahead of time I dive into the book writing whatever I know at the time. And for me, most of the times the books start with um, almost like I'm eavesdropping on two people in a restaurant. I hear these, I hear voices, Joanna. And I just start taking down what they're saying. I may, I don't know their names. I don't know their situations a lot of time. Just, I have this feel and I'm hearing them talk. And a lot of times like I can say specifically with my first book, it started with an argument on a basketball court between the heroine and the hero. And there was this back and forth. And that's what I started with. And then I had to think, well, okay, <laughs> who are these people? Where did they come from? Why, how did they get to this point? Where are they going to go from here? And then you play the what ifs. So. I I think of it, one of the ways I think of it is that I I did a talk with a really good friend who writes totally differently. And our talk was writing from the inside out or the outside in. So I think of it as writing, the way I do it is writing from this feel and hearing who the characters are, and then writing out to structure, where plotters tend to start from structure. They know the story and they know the the events that are going to happen and they write into the guts of the character. You have to have both to have a really good book, Hmm. but it doesn't matter which way. Mm, and it's interesting you mentioned there your friend who writes totally differently well even within the sort of broad pantser and discovery writing to the plotter there are different people within that for example you're Absolutely. talking there about almost taking dictation some people call it and they hear those voices my mum does exactly the same and it's so funny when she gave me the first draft of her first novel I was like it was totally talking heads in an empty white room <laughs> as in, it was a conversation between two people with no setting no nothing and, and I was like okay that's interesting and it's like she heard the conversation whereas I'm 
I don't hear that at all. I don't hear <gasps> any voices. I start, I'm a, a discovery writer, but I usually start with an object or a, a thing or a, a myth, but that isn't the story that I'm getting to or a place. Uh, and my characters, I mean, for me, dialogue's like one of the last things that happens. <laughs> would, you, would you consider the thing that you start with like Hitchcock's MacGuffin? Yeah, it's basically a MacGuffin. Okay. I usually start with a MacGuffin or I start with a reason for a bad guy to do something really bad. So, so I might start with a reason to destroy things. <laughs> but, isn't it, and, and I, but I'm still a discovery writer because it doesn't really tell you anything so, uh, uh, about the plot. And then I just start writing. But isn't that interesting? And I, I want people listening to really get this. And like part of the reason you, you said writers who don't write, write. It's like write with an R and a W. It's like, well, people write differently everybody writes differently well and sometimes different books the same author writing different books for whatever reason a different book will a book will come to you in a slightly different way it's a multi-choice and all these things can be combined the other thing I as I said I often start in the middle I don't write in sequence I write what I know when I know it as long as those words will come to me. And then there's usually a point at which they stop. And then I have to really work. <laughs> you know, then I have to be the grown up. But hopefully it's far enough along in the story that I feel connected to the characters and I use the skills that I have. So I use guilt. So <laughs> I feel guilty if I don't give those characters a full life. And that will push me to to do the not as much fun stuff oh that that's really interesting so uh, I am exactly the same I don't write in sequence so I think that maybe <gasps> one thing that pantsers or discovery writers have in common is that they don't write in sequence although now I'm thinking Dean Wesley Smith is a discovery writer and he right. just starts and just carries on until he's done and writes like what he calls one draft although he does this circling while he's going through it but yeah I totally write out of sequence and we're going to come to that moment of stopping because I'm also the same I write 20 about 25 5,000 words and then I have to stop but let's yeah. let's circle back to a question that I know people have because at the end of the day story structure is critical for a book oh, to yes. work you can't just ramble on a page um so how do we manage structure when we are discovery writers the good news is that I think a lot of us have internalized the rhythm and the the sense of oops you know, something else needs to be here. You know, this isn't quite gelled. And so then what what I do is at, when I get, it's usually, I probably write overwrite more. So I have like 30,000 or 35,000 words is where I come to this. Okay, the, the goodies from the sky are stopping. I, now I have to really dig in. And I look at it and I almost, it's like I spread the pieces out and check that against um, usually three-act structure uh, from a book called Making the Good Script Great by Linda Seeger. Now, I believe strongly that different people will connect with different expressions of structure, that a lot of the structure is at core the same, the what people are teaching, but that you need to find the expression of it that that works for you, that 
that makes sense in your head. And for me, it was that book. And I'm looking at it on my shelf. It's getting pretty tattered. But I think I have probably sold so many copies of that book by telling people about it. And I had taken all these courses on structure, the W course and the W structure. And there was something else that, oh, some people who had colored postcards and you had to do this scene and and have that scene in this color and the, and I can remember coming home from a conference with a friend driving and saying I can't do that that's the way you got to do books I am done for and that's it and she said the immortal words pat you idiot <laughs> You are doing it. I think at that point I had two books published and the third was sold. And that was a great lesson. You know, we so many people teach out of the goodness of their hearts and and want to share what's worked for them, but you've got to filter through filter it through your own process and what works for you and not abandon your process. Improve it all the time, always being looking for ways to improve it, but at the same time protecting it. Mm, I think that's really important. And and I, I have this thing in, in my head uh, that you really only need a few things. You need one character who wants to achieve something and something else or another character who wants to stop them in a setting. <laughs> And then yeah, go, yeah. really. I mean, and and I'm similar to you in, in terms of just trusting. I, th- I feel like I'm always trying to improve my process, but I think it was Rachel Heron, an obviously wonderful writer and podcaster as well, who said the same thing to me, which is, I was like, oh, I really want to do this, that and the other and do more plotting or whatever. And she said, yeah, but you've written 17 novels, like yeah. in, in the way that you do them. So what's the problem? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you the truth. I had tried plotting three separate times. And each time I lost a book. Well, I two times, one time I finally regained the book, but it was partly, I guess, squirrel mind where my, my mind said, okay, you got a plot. You told this story. Let's go do something else. We know how that one turns out. So, and the only way you, I think you really learn your process is by doing. And I also think your process tweaks and grows with you. You're just constantly watching it a little bit and and playing with things. I know what you mean as well. I think you kind of lose the fun when you say lost a book there. Yeah. I know what you mean. If I knew everything that happened, I'd be bored. Although to be fair, <sighs> some people who are plotters will say that they will do an outline and then the book will never turn out exactly like the outline so I feel like maybe they just set some guidelines maybe or maybe even that plotters have more stuff written down and we have things in our heads that we haven't quite got hold of yet that they're more running around in our brains and we don't get to them until we write them whereas was the plotters sort of write them out first do you find that you as you're writing and you're discovering things, I sometimes will have, I, well, I always have another file going beyond the, the book and I will write notes in there. So it's like, and I refer to it as retroactive plotting that I'm just, as I'm writing, I am in fact discovering the plot and I'm going over it and making these little notes so that I can keep up with what's happening do you do that oh it's funny because I in your book I read retroactive plotting and that's not what I 
call it. Well, I mean, I I do that, but I do something slightly different. So I get to say 25,000 words. And then what I do then is I stop and I, as if I'm plotting, I start from there. So I say, okay, so I'm missing this bit and I'm missing that bit and I need to write Mm. a scene there. Mm -hmm. Now now I know that this might happen. And the the interesting, the other thing that often happens around then is that I realise that I haven't gone big enough. So what, because I write thrillers, obviously, a lot of the time what happens is I'll get another bigger idea. So I might have had a scene or a, a thread or a reason for the for the bad things to happen. And then I'll discover something about 25K in that takes it up a level. And this has uh-huh. happened so many times. And so my retroactive plotting is almost stopping at that point. And then I'll read what I have. So I will read at 25,000. Yes. You know, some yep. people say, oh, wait till you finish the draft. But for me, that basically is the draft that I have and it's not finished. <laughs> and don't you find wonderful little t- nuggets in there that it, like, you don't even remember? remember writing or you don't you didn't realize the import of them as you wrote them and then you go ah that okay yeah and yeah exactly and I think when I talk to plotters they'll say well they found that in the process when they did the outline so maybe it is timing and maybe we're just doing that while we're writing but can we come to one of the biggest criticisms of uh, discovery writing which is when people say you in inverted commas waste time because you end up having to do so much editing what do you feel about that is that true for you well, I think it is very much about the timing and where in the process you are using what time. Because the plotters, and, 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 and this is one of the things that just drives me crazy, you know, they'll talk about how many words they can write, but they discount, they do not count the time that they spent plotting. For this discovery writers, the plotting is integral to the writing. They're they're combined. It's all at once. So you're not writing necessarily as many words per day. But I think the overall process is comparable and more fun for, for me. A lot more fun to do it my way. Um, plus, wait, can I just restate what you said? Because it was yes. really important. I think that books that are sort of 5,000 words per hour... <laughs> always have uh you must know what you write before you write it whereas what you're saying is for us for discovery writers we might write slower as in we might do 2,000 words a day which is about my normal rate but we don't spend all the time in advance preparing what we're going to say right right so it's do it as you go or it's do it in two separate steps but if you do it in two separate steps you have to count both steps when when you are talking about how long it takes you Um, yeah I think that's really important and it's interesting because again very prolific writer uh, Lindsay Broker who you know has been on the show and she says that she got a lot more productive when she started plotting but then I also look at again Dean Wesley Smith who is just incredibly prolific and doesn't do that so you can be prolific either way right yes Yes, well, you don't absolutely. have to be prolific either. <laughs> We're That's, not saying you have to be. <laughs> right. And man, I look at it from my standpoint, how prolific is it if I keep losing books by trying to plot? So by, by losing interest in them, that's not going to help me any. It just makes me sad that uh, that book didn't come together. We were talking about discovery writers and, and do we always write out a sequence. There are infinite 
varieties of discovery writers as there are infinite varieties of plotters. And I, I think that's one of the marvelous things about it. You don't have to do it the way anybody else does it. You, in a way, you can't. It's like what they, how, how they talk about if you gave a room full of writers the same writing prompt, each, people, each person would come up with a different story. And I think in a way, we're also saying, okay, get what's in your head onto a page to be able to convey it to another human being. And there are infinite ways to do that. And however you do it is what works. And I hate when there's this pressure to do it a certain way uh, or a pressure to not do it a certain way because it makes you question it and that takes so much of the joy out of it. Yeah, exactly. If, if you want to go do something miserable, then stick at the day job. <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? I said, you know, there's so many other jobs you could do. where you, Yeah, that would you, make you more money. If you make you miserable. more money, easier hours, and frankly, an easier boss. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I do want to ask a practical question, though, on pre-orders, right? Because this is something I really struggle with. So people are like, oh, it's really good. Like when we publish wide, it, one of the best tips is to do long pre-orders mm-hmm. and I'm like but I can't do a pre-order because I might not know the title I don't know what book I'm gonna write I definitely don't know the plot so how could I do a pre-order I mean yes there are assetless pre-orders where you just put a placeholder but I don't see much point in doing that so how do you do pre-orders or do you wait I mean what I normally do now is when I finish the first draft then I put a pre-order up because I know what's happening <laughs> Pre-order is an element of a deadline for me. I put them up uh, usually, well, it depends. I have I have several series going. Actually, I have three mystery series and six romance series. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. There was just a discussion on an author group about this, um, a Facebook group, about what do you put. And I was just astonished that some people put not only the finished book, but a finished or the finished cover rather, but the finished blurb. And I tend to have a finished cover in these series because I know what the series look is for the cover. And so there's only small elements that are or limited number of elements that are changing. So the cover can be done. And besides that, somebody else doing it. <laughs> The blurb, however, is sort of a book will be here someday. <laughs> yeah, I book, think that book that's 10 similar. in this series is coming and it's called this. Right. Well, I think that's good to know because pre orders are important, but this doesn't stop people doing them. And the other question I really right. had was about given that you mentioned how many series you have, do you have series Bibles for your books? Do you have an No. Organized- yeah. <laughs> so glad you said that because every time I finish I'm like I really need to do a series bible and then I just never do because again it feels a bit like a plotting thing well two things two things I do have the woman has been proofing my books for me has created a character list because I'm like in this one mystery series I'm um, looking at book 11 there have been a lot of characters and I've killed them off and I find I have a tendency to reuse certain names. So that's, that's an effort to, to keep me controlled so I can go and check 
the that whether I've used the names or not. The other thing I found was this fabulous app called Seek Fast. And you can put all your like I have the the first 10 books of this series and then I can search and one of the word, one of the names I use a lot is Henry. <laughs> If there's a walk-on male, he's Henry. So I can go in and search Henry, and it will pull up the references to that in all of the books. And I can see how many times I've used it. Or what was the specific name of the museum that I just threw off and and thought I would never use again, and here I need to know the name again. So I can go in and search museum. And it will search across all of the books in the series. Mm, I, I do that. I have a one vellum file with all my books in each series in. So I do the searching. That's basically how I manage it too, which is, again, interesting, isn't it, that we do something similar, whereas I feel like people who love all the detailed plotting and all the spreadsheets have these sort of really intricate series Bibles and extra material. I think that I don't have extra material. I just search my existing material like you. Yeah, we're we're at a need to know basis. Yeah, you know, the information as you need it. That's and, interesting. So, just, sorry, just for people who are still interested in traditional publishing, because you obviously did so much in traditional publishing first. A lot of traditional publishers want like three chapters and an outline. <laughs> so, what happened when you were in traditional publishing? It was, was hell. <laughs> it was hell, especially the synopsis. And we used to refer to it as the S word because it was just so brutal. The other thing that happened to me in traditional publishing is I had, with one publisher, I think I had 24 books and I had 32 editors. And it wasn't because I was so difficult <laughs> by any means. For one, one thing, I would hit deadline and they'd say I'd screwed up their schedule because they hadn't planned on it coming in on time. <laughs> so they'd give it to somebody else. But a couple of them that I had were wonderful because they would say, just give us the gist of the story. But it was not a good fit for me. I wasn't a good fit for traditional because there are reasons they need that information. You know, it isn't just arbitrary. Mm. And it's one of the reasons I think indie has suited me so well and has been such a relief. And I don't do ARCs, advanced reader copies I don't try to get early reviews because I'm not early. <laughs> Deadline, but I am not early. Oh, that's um, good. I, I only do, I pretty much send out ebook arcs two weeks before when basically I've uploaded my book and everything's finished. So I'm, I'm, and again, similarly to you, I think a lot of the arcs in traditional publishing need to be three to six months before. And that's just not crazy. how we work. So I think that's great. I think pe- that will help people. Any other tips for discovery writers that come up? often. Your book is absolutely full of tips, but any final one thing that you think is most important? My number one piece of advice for all aspects of writing is all writing advice, whether it's process or business or any of it, is a buffet. It is not a fixed menu. You get to pick and choose what you're going to try. You know, somebody gives you six steps, you can take just one. You can ignore all of them. And Try it. See what happens, but in a controlled way so you don't just turn your whole world upside down. So that's my number one. A really practical thing 
for those of us who don't write in order and don't use, you use Scrivener, right? Yeah. 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 See, I don't because I tried it, but it didn't gel for me. I still, I'm in word, but I have discovered actually a good friend, Dale Mayer pointed out using headings. And what I do is I will be writing something and I will just call it chapter slash break and then whatever it is. It's some descriptive and I make that a heading. And so then over on the left side of my document, and I can toggle it on or off, I have this whole list of headings. And then you can just take the heading and move it. And you're moving the whole chunk instead of cutting and pasting chunks. I love this. Then I just discovered a a few days ago that you can print out just that heading information. And so you can see it on paper. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's pretty much why I love Scrivener because it does all of that and it's really designed for dragging and dropping and I can put all my research in. And I did my first novel with Word and I just hated it. So, it, but again, it's what we, there are no rules, as we've yes. said. You find whatever no rules. for you and use what you're comfortable. I mean, I haven't been on a PC for over a decade. <laughs> so for me to go anywhere near Word would just not work. <laughs> And I found I found Scrivener to me. I couldn't see all the pieces laid out as well. It, it felt more siloed, but I know it works for a lot of people. So that's why I tried it. And mm. I think that if you don't try it, many of these things, you could be missing out. So, you know, give it a shot. Just don't and that goes for everything. That goes back to my buffet, you know, try mm. to see what tastes good. Just don't fill your whole plate with it. And- so all of that is fantastic. And I totally agree on all the writing process. And obviously you've now got, as you said, over 60 books, we think everyone stops counting. Uh, but And <laughs> so you've learned how to do this writing journey. And obviously you're still experimenting, which is fantastic. But the other thing is you've been in this industry for 30 plus years now. And I really love talking to authors like yourself and obviously Chris Rush and Dean Wesley Smith, who've been on the show and Kevin J. Anderson. And I I just love talking to authors who have managed to keep a career going Mm. for this long, because let's face it. I mean, I love indie authors, but there's a lot of indie authors who are like, yeah, this is the answer. And I've been doing it a year or five (laughs) years or even me. I've been doing it a decade. But what I wanted to ask was, was from you is how how have you kept this going for so long? Like what keeps the longevity going? Stubbornness doesn't hurt. <laughs> I will say that. I, I really think that the, I think knowing the reason that you're writing, uh, what is that, that core drive? And I did a keynote for the Australian romance writers in 2015. And then I, recorded some of it and it's on YouTube. I think it's called three words on writing. I do an exercise that helps get you to what is the number one reason that you're writing. For me, the first time I did this, it was actually, it was a shock. And, but the number one reason was to get these people out of my head. And that is very telling because there's so many things that you do in the business, especially, that have no benefit to getting the people out of my head. 
But I need to get these people out of my head because more people are coming in and that waiting room gets really loud and cranky and jammed. So I keep coming back to that. Is this going to help get these people out of my head? So I think that is one knowing why you write. And it can be that you're writing for the money, or it can be that you're writing for fame, or it can be that you're writing to make a point about something specific, or you're writing to work off, work through things that happened in your life. Or Um, or figure out what you think. That's what one of my... Yes. Isn't that interesting? Do you find out what you realize what you think as you type the words? Yeah, I don't know what I think until I write it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. So that is one thing. I also think taking a long view of it is important. You know, I don't want to write just one perfect book because what would be the push to write more books? I want to, I want a career. I don't want a one mega bestseller. I'm very happy being not super well-known, not well-known, six-figure author who has 60 books. That that works for me. I get to keep telling stories and I get to keep getting these people out of my head. I really like that because I, I've also been thinking about this in terms of the not very well-known six-figure author who just enjoys writing. This is, yeah. I think this is actually... I think perfect. That's, where, that's yeah, it's perfect because most of us have most of us are introverts. Most of us don't want to go on TV. Don't Mm-mm. want to be famous. I mean, look at the people, the the writers who get these seven figure deals and then get totally shredded in social media or whatever. And I'm just like, do you know what? I'm just quite happy being in our little friendly corner of the internet. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, I love that. But that's very encouraging to people. And to have a long term career like you have and and still are having is is that's probably the most important thing is that you are also there's a contentment with just being happy writing. Absolutely. And I think one of one of the things that some of the beginning writers can get caught up in the the market of people saying, oh, get rich quick, do it this way. You can have a big career really fast if you follow these five steps, blah, 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 blah. Uh, What I have seen is that a lot of those people are not writing, especially long-term. They may still be in the industry, but they are publishers or related entrepreneurs. They are not writing. I want to write. I don't want all that other... stuff. I mean, I I do the business and it's important. It it supports the writing, but it supports the writing. The writing doesn't support the business. Mm. It's something really practical, I will say, for long term. So my number one thing would be tend to the writing. Take care of it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the process. And then I would also really warn people about not getting on a financial treadmill where you have to you have to produce so many books a year to to support and you're always kind of behind so i'm a big believer in no debt stay ahead financially put some aside each month for those annual bills that are going to come up taxes <laughs> but other things too you have some big 
uh, like for me, it's the newsletter is is a fairly mm, mine's big, website hosting. That's yes, a big one. <laughs> yes. Oh, with with all your, your audio, that you know, it's going to be huge. But so you instead of just getting that huge bill one one month a year and going ah put some aside for it each month. I have cushions and then I have cushions for the cushions and then I have cushions by category. And then I have something I call bad month fund. So (laughs) it's a line item on my budget that I just keep adding money into it. And, and, you know, if something falls off the cliff at some point, then I've got that cushion. And what it boils down to is don't let the business run your writing. So, I'm very practical about that. I also, I know you've talked about investing. I'm with you all the way there. Low expense investing regularly and let that sit for you. You have time work in your favor. And especially those who are listening, who are out there younger, put the money away now. You can you come up so much less money that you have to, to put away now and come up with the same amount when you're going to need it when you're older. No, that's fantastic. And I think at the end of the day, like it's not sexy. It's not a get rich scheme, no. but you, it's going to give you a long-term writing career following those rules. Exactly. You get to keep doing it. You get to keep doing the writing. You know, the other thing, Joanna, is I, I hear and I read and I see uh, authors coming in and approaching this with this sort of hunched over mode of fear. And I hate that. I think it comes from thinking that if they can find the exact right steps, you know, (laughs) that they will, that they're guaranteed. And if it's not, if they're not a success, it's because they didn't find the right steps and the right order and they should have bought another program and all this stuff. And I, I think that's so misleading. First of all, it makes me sad that people are, that are, kind of clenched. But the the people who are selling those programs can be doing it from a good space, but they're looking retroactively at what worked for them. What worked for them, so that's one factor, the individual. And then it's also the time factor because it has to be retroactive, which means they were doing it in a different time from when the new people are trying to do it. And things change so much that it's not always beneficial. And I keep coming back to build your own career, you know, build the career the way you want to succeed. And then that is success. If you're doing something that you like for a long time and you're able to keep doing it, holy moly, that is success. That is. And that is a great way to finish. So, Pat, where can people find you and your books online? PatriciaMcLynn.com. Also, I do a podcast, AuthorsLoveReaders.com, where I interview authors in it from a reader's standpoint. So it's not, it's not as much the inside baseball discussion, but more about the questions that readers would like to write, ask authors, including you, JF Penn um, (laughs) had a good time talking with you. So those are the main places on Facebook. It's Patricia McLynn. I'm on Instagram. I think there it's Patricia McLynn author. Well, thanks so much for your time, Pat. That was great. 
Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Patricia McLean today and that you can see how differently we all write but still end up with finished books at the end of it all. And perhaps you will join us in wanting to be a not very well-known six-figure happy author. <laughs> I just love that idea. Next week, I'm talking about the various stages of the editing process with Natasha Lekich. So more on the writing craft next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.